This podcast is brought to you by the Creation Academy Honors Program, an apologetics learning experience designed to teach, train, and inspire others to become strong defenders of the Christian faith and biblical creation. Launching early 2019, the program offers video and audio training with downloadable course workbooks, expert interviews, and exclusive Q&A sessions with leading creation scientists and apologists, quarterly ebooks covering a wide variety of subject matter, and even a private Facebook community where you'll fellowship and interact with a like-minded community of believers. If you want to be notified when the program goes live and even help us design the experience from the ground up, head on over to www.jointca.co today and sign up for the waitlist. You'll get early access to the private Facebook group for free as a thank you for joining. You're listening to the Steve Schramm Show, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in apologetics and biblical creation science. I hope you are doing well on this fine uh, morning or uh, whenever you're listening to it. I kind of have to remember uh, with the podcast that uh, just because uh, I wake up at the crack of dawn to record these things um, does not mean that you're listening at the crack of dawn. Uh, at least I would hope you're not. Hope you're getting uh, so, so some good sleep and listening at a reasonable hour. Uh, but nevertheless, it is a pleasure to uh, have your ear for just a few moments this week, to have your time, and I appreciate uh, you joining us. We're going to talk today about something that has been on my mind a lot recently, and it, uh, it relates a little bit to the subject matter that we talked about the week before uh, last. We dealt with the idea of science and and really um, what science is um, how does one how does one do science is kind of what we talked about uh, last week and in that discussion we kind of got to an interesting question and the the question that we got to, deals with the relationship of science and the Bible. The relationship of science and the Bible. And, um, you know, look, this is a topic that in some ways has been dealt with uh, to death, right? I mean, people from both, uh, I shouldn't say both because there's many, but people from every side of the spectrum have their opinion about what what one is supposed to do with scientific information as they relate it to the Bible. There are multiple overarching views about how to accomplish this. Um, we're not going to get into the discussion of concordism versus non-concordism today. I think that deserves its own treatment and... I've not, you know, I'm not really sure about when we're going to do that. I don't necessarily uh, feel compelled to do that one anytime soon. Um, 
But I do want to speak more broadly to the issue. And I'm going to reference an article uh, a little bit today that I wrote recently for the Creation Club. If you go to thecreationclub.com, it is essentially a website uh, by the David Reeves Ministry. And on that website, uh, independent creationists essentially have the opportunity to go on there and write and submit materials. And I have worked with their new content curator. Um, her name is uh, Sherry. She is a, a wonderful lady. Uh, we have conversed multiple times. She has her own podcast, actually, the Creation Science for Kids podcast, which I certainly recommend. And she works over there uh, with the Creation Club and she puts together uh, these different articles and she does some writing and she also curates the writing of some other people. Now, uh, that said, you know, one caveat about using websites like that is um, authors are encouraged to share their opinions. And you just have to realize that it's an opinion site. Uh, Some people's opinions are would be highly contested by other people's opinions. Uh, some of my opinions on there have been contested, and that's okay. That's what good open discussion and dialogue is for. Uh, but just, you know, use that filter when researching creation information on a website like that. But I wrote a article for the Creation Club last month And the title of it was, The One Big Problem with Science Versus the Bible Thinking. And in that particular article, I wanted to discuss the issue of the appeal to authority uh, fallacy, and specifically the majority version, right? So kind of, if we were to shorten that, the appeal to the majority fallacy. Uh, In other words, there is certainly value when we can notice that a majority of scholars holds a particular opinion on one thing. However, that is not to be used as an argument in favor of advancing a particular view. And again, as I believe we did touch on a little bit in the uh, podcast lesson a couple weeks ago, we must realize that scientific advancement happens precisely when the majority is challenged. And so the reason I wrote that article is I I wanted to show that it is not uh, what the majority says goes. And that's the problem, one of the, the big problems, I called it the one big problem, with science versus the Bible thinking, is thinking that there is some majority Uh, scientific view that must be integrated with the Bible simply because it is the majority scientific view. That's just not how science works. But there's another angle to that discussion, and I, I did go further into this, albeit briefly, in the article, and so I wanted to speak to it a little more. And it actually relates to another question that I had recently uh, by a gentleman uh, named, I want to say Jeremiah. It's been a little while since I've talked to him, but I believe his name is Jeremiah. And he reached out to me on Facebook 
And, you know, I really appreciate him uh, because he is an old earth creationist. And through our discussions, uh, I don't think he has changed his mind about that. However, I, I do think, uh, hopefully I could, I could claim this, um, rightly speaking, I do think that he has made a concerted effort to understand the young age creationist view at least more than most that I encounter. I could probably count them on one hand. I'm thinking of three individuals, him included, who I could say have really made an honest effort to engage with young age creationist materials in a thoroughgoing way. And in fact, what Jeremiah did, of course, I I met him, I uh, first encountered him probably when we were somewhere in the 50s, right? So we're at less than 62 today. So somewhere in the 60s or in the 50s um, lessons, he found my material and actually decided to go back and listen from episode one. From the very first lesson of our podcast, he listened to all of them. And as far as I know, he still listens to them. So I'm not sure whether he's still listening today. But he actually asked me this question uh, in passing. And I'm, I'm not sure if I answered it or not yet, to be honest with you. Because we were in a discussion and there were multiple things going on. And I can't remember if I answered this. But I did answer this in this Creation Club article, and so I'd actually like to bring it out a little bit more today. So the question, as he asked it, was this. At what point would I allow modern science to dictate my understanding of the Bible? Now, that's an interesting question. And the example that is often brought up, and I'm pretty sure he brought it up as well, is this example of dinosaurs maybe contrasted with uh, theistic evolutionism. In other words, let me kind of paint the picture for you in the same way that I did in the Creation Club article. We have a scenario where Genesis 1 through 11, there is much disagreement within legitimate Bible-believing camps as to what the nature of, uh, uh, of that portion of Scripture is. Now, I'm very strongly convinced through hours and hours upon hours of study um, that we should handle Genesis 1 through 11 just exactly like we handle everything else in the Bible. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that a natural interpretation of Scripture is the best hermeneutic to understand the entirety of Scripture all the way through. And I think when we do that, it precludes some of... And it, it precludes the integration of some newer scientific uh, theorem into those first few chapters of the Bible. And so if we just get real real blunt for just a minute here, um, under the understanding of Scripture that I have, evolution 
would not fit into the Bible. Theistic evolution would simply, uh, or evolutionary creationism, however we want to put that, uh, would simply be like a married bachelor or something like that. It would just be something that uh, that is precluded by my understanding of Scripture. Now, of course, we can't just assume that outright. We have to give reasons why we think that the first chapters of Genesis are that way, and those reasons have to hold up, and I think they do. So, at this point in time, we're going to go ahead and, and assume that, and you know that will remain somewhat unargued. Okay, but there are some who are unconvinced. Um, there are some who are convinced that the first uh, chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 11, are not teaching uh, um, certain literal uh, understandings of the mechanisms God used to create the world. Uh, in other words, they see things in there that are highly figurative, highly stylized language that is allegorical in the sense that it speaks to meaningful um, history, but there is vast interpretation as to how long the creative processes could have taken, etc. Essentially, being that Genesis 1-11 through 11 in many ways is largely to be understood as only or merely a polemic against the uh, Egyptians and Mesopotamians, and that the most meaningful bit of information that can be taken from those chapters is essentially that God is a transcendent God who is not like all the other pagan gods. Under that understanding of Scripture, some, not all, but some, argue then that there is re, uh, there's room to bring in the majority view of some sort of Darwinian evolution. And the challenge to the creationist is that this is one way of holding uh, science in a relationship to the Bible that the creationist rejects. Okay, so so here we have on one hand people who claim, and they give reasons, to have a, a particular interpretation of Scripture that does not preclude something like evolutionary creationism. And they say, well, okay, so, so since our understanding of Scripture doesn't preclude it, and since it is the scientific majority, uh, maybe there's something to this. Maybe it does work to put evolution in the Bible. Now, I would argue at that point that um, once that happens, there are later scriptures all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that there are there are problems created for understanding those scriptures, and so they must be reinterpreted in order to make that paradigm work. So I don't think um, that that is the proper way of doing things, obviously. But, so let's just take that for what it's worth. Let's put that on one side. That's one pile of evidence. Uh, over here, we have this interpretation of Genesis that would potentially allow for evolutionary creationism. Um, evolution seems to be the majority view amongst scientists as to the origin of life. So um, maybe this is the way to go, right? So, so that's, one, that's one side. 
Okay, now the other side, of course, precludes that. However, the side, uh, particularly the young earth creationist, um, in our context, who would deny that, also comes in and says, well, there are some other areas in the Bible that seem to be speaking about scientific matters. So we understand, uh, and again, we'll just go to the example I used in the article um, because it's the easiest kind of to parse out, uh, but the issue of dinosaurs. So for years and years, uh, some of the chapters, like Job 40 is one great example of a chapter uh, where it the Bible deals with a creature called behemoth. And if you look at the description of this um of this creature, it sounds something like what we know today as a Brachiosaurus. And so because of that, there is this accusation that the young earth creationist is arbitrarily uh, picking and choosing scriptures which could relate to science and and somehow we could bring in scientific application to them. But then there are other scriptures in which we would not allow that to happen, such as this idea of theistic evolution. So hopefully you kind of see the picture Right, that's being painted here. There, there is this um, this problem supposedly of well, what you know, how how can we say that we can integrate science into the Bible supposedly arbitrarily uh, when we are talking about things like dinosaurs, uh, but when it comes to evolution, we can't make it work. The the time. Etc. We're just not willing to uh, to let the Bible speak to matters of uh, science when it comes to science that we disagree upon. And so, um, you know, Jeremiah, he, again, a very nice fellow. He did not ask his particular question to me in any sort of, you know, with any sort of uh, uh, malicious intent at all. Uh, he just says, at what point would I allow modern science to dictate my understanding of the Bible. And the way the question is phrased says a lot about the way that this question needs to be answered. The The answer is this. I'm going to give you the answer, and then we're going to talk about it. So the answer is, at no point would I allow modern science to dictate my understanding of the Bible. Let me say that again. At no point would I allow modern science to dictate my understanding of the Bible. Now, why is that? And how is that different from what the theistic evolutionist uh, does? You know, where does that fit on that spectrum? Is that what the theistic evolutionist does? Is that what the guy who thinks the Bible talks about dinosaurs does? What's going on there? And again, no malicious intent in his question. It's a good question, I think. Um, here's the thing. When we study the Bible, uh, documents uh, that are written have an authorial intent. The key to discovering what a document means 
And that's the case whether it is 4,000 years old or 200 years old or two years old. The only way to get to the core of what an author is trying to communicate is to understand what their intended meaning is. Okay, you, um, the way you arrive at that intended meaning is by taking words in their usual context, looking at the words that the author used, and interpreting those words, yes, based on certain pieces of background information, historical context, um, the things that were happening that can be verified uh, from uh, from other forms of history, um, the figures of speech that were used, if any idioms were used, the genre, uh, if it can be determined of the text, all of these things kind of help us to discover what the author intended to communicate. Now, here's the problem. Nothing about modern science has the power to change what an author intended to communicate thousands of years ago. Now, the Bible is a little bit, uh, (laughs) to put it lightly, of a unique document. The Bible is a book that was penned by men under the inspiration of God. The Bible features, uh, one of the biggest features of the Bible, which nobody would contest, is a form of, um, of, uh, of writing, of delivery, called prophecy. Prophecy. Now, prophecy is something interesting, because when a person speaks prophetically, they are accessing information that was previously only available to God. The person who wrote the prophecy down may not fully understand the meaning of the prophecy. When Isaiah, uh, just consider all of the messianic prophecies in Isaiah. Um, I don't think Isaiah particularly had Jesus Christ in mind when he was writing. However, we know that that's who he was writing about. And that is something that God intended to communicate. So, I think then, it is at least possible. I mean, it's at least possible that God could have given uh, information to the biblical writers, especially if it was information that they have... um, to some degree, experience themselves, even if they didn't have meaningful ways to really talk about it, he could have given information that would have been lost to modern discovery for many years. Um, So let me give you one example. This deviates from the dinosaur example a little bit, but it's to prove a point. Job also talks about um, springs in the sea. Uh, There's a good article on this, I believe it was written by Steve Austin, but I can't remember for sure, on uh, icr.org. There's a good article on Springs in the Sea. And uh, just to make the point very briefly, there is no way 
Job could have known about the springs at the bottom of the sea. Now, the interpreter who has a hard time believing that Job would have known about those things approaches the text and says, oh, Job could not have known about these things. So this must mean something else. This must just be some sort of a metaphor or some sort of an allegorical thing. It must speak to something completely different. But what if the author's intended meaning was just simply to say that there are springs in the sea? Well, there is a novel idea. No matter how hard it is for us to believe, if Job wrote about the fact that there were springs in the sea, and yet we know that he could not have known that there were springs in the sea, then we are dealing with something that many call scientific foreknowledge. In other words, we're dealing with the fact that um, the Bible speaks correctly about scientific information that was not known about. I mean, we didn't discover springs in the sea. That's a very modern discovery, like the 70s. Okay, so understand what's going on here. When we look at that, it's kind of like, oh, okay, well, either this guy knew something divinely, it seems, or this just must be talking about something else. And it's just a coincidence that we did actually find springs in the sea. But when the author says springs in the sea, that's not actually what he means. Well, you can see the slippery slope that happens with that. I mean, you could you could make the Bible say anything under that kind of understanding. I don't think that's the appropriate way to interpret Scripture. So, um, a, is that allowing modern science to dictate my understanding of the Bible? No, no that that particular case it is not. Uh, just because we discovered modern uh, or springs in the sea recently. It does not mean that I'm changing my understanding of the Bible. My understanding of the Bible was always that there were springs in the sea. But why was it that way? It was that way because that's what the author wrote and seemingly intended to communicate. Okay, so remember the question. At what point would I allow modern science to dictate my understanding of the Bible? Well, note that modern science did happen to discover springs in the sea. But that did not alter my understanding of the words in the Bible. I understand them just exactly as clearly as I understand them now. Um, I understood them. Let me rephrase that a little bit. I understood them when I, before I started into this scientific inquiry of the Bible a few years ago, right? So I understood that the Bible said that there were springs in the sea before I even knew uh, that there were springs in the sea. And then I found that scientists had discovered springs in the sea. And lo and behold, it's not a reinterpretation of scripture. Rather, it is a confirmation of scripture. Um, now applied a little differently then to the dinosaur discussion. So Job 40, it talks about this beast, this creature, who seems to stand pretty tall. The Bible actually says that he is the chief, right, of all the created animals. He's got these, you know, he's big boned. He's got this big old tail that is like a cedar. Um, It's just this description of what could be something like a Brachiosaurus, right, or something uh, of that nature. A big, long-necked kind of dinosaur. So the charge is, well, aren't we allowing 
modern science then, because we didn't know about dinosaurs until recently, to dictate our understanding of the Bible. Well, by understanding it as a dinosaur, let me ask you this. Do I have to look at that chapter and reinterpret anything about the words in the chapter? The words that describe the dinosaur, or what I think is probably a dinosaur. Now, we can't be dogmatic because it, it, I mean, the, the Bible doesn't have pictures with it, okay, right? But interpreters, until the discovery of dinosaurs, the best they had was like a hippo or, you know, something like that. Um, and of course, there are those who want to attribute behemoth to A&E, you know, mythical, allegorical stuff. I'm not going down that rabbit trail today. I've got some thoughts on that. I'm still developing more thoughts on that. But John Oswald in The Bible Among the Myths has pretty convincingly argued that some of these beasts, even if they had um, mythical counterpart understandings like Behemoth and Leviathan, has argued that the descriptions of them are so vivid in describing what seems to be a real creature um, that he feels there's no choice, but that they must be understood as actual creatures that potentially the writers were even looking at, especially in the case of Job. Even if there is some sort of any mythical counterpart using the same name, um, Oswald in particular believes that these are actual creatures. And I, I agree with him. Okay, this is just that's some support from a scholar. Uh, but whether or not you take the support from the scholar, I think just reading the words, that's what you come up with. So... Up to this point, uh, interpreters who understand the Bible to be communicating literally or, or naturally, if that's a more favorable word for you to use, uh, thought it was maybe like a hippo uh, or, or something like that. But when I look at the description of this creature, knowing what I know now about a dinosaur, um, it seems ludicrous to interpret something as a hippo, to interpret that beast as a hippo, uh, because it just doesn't line up. I have a better option. Now, you have to very carefully understand what this means. I'm not having to alter anything about what the text says. This is not modern science dictating my understanding of the Bible. By dictate, you have to understand what we mean by that. The word dictate, it would mean to to rule over. In other words, um, in this case, it would mean that we would have to reinterpret what the Bible means based on new information that was discovered later. But that that's not the kind of thing that we're doing here. We are using new scientific information to bolster our understanding of the natural world, but it is based on what the Bible already has said. We're not changing the words. We're understanding what the words mean in a more uh, in, in a fuller way, in a better way, right? Now, the reason I said a minute ago that we can't be dogmatic is because, again, there's no pictures. Um, it doesn't say dinosaur, right? Because the word dinosaur wasn't invented until like the 1800s. Um, 
it's potential the word dragons is in the Bible, so it's a it's a potential that uh, what we understand today as a dinosaur, the ancients might have understood as a dragon. Uh, I'm willing, I'm willing to entertain that speculation. Nevertheless, um, what we have in this situation is words in the Bible that seem to convey a certain thing that didn't really make sense until the discovery of dinosaurs. The words springs in the sea wouldn't have made sense until the discovery of springs in the sea. Okay, so we're not changing the information that is present in the Bible in order to understand um what the words, you know, are, are saying. Our understanding of the natural world is bolstered, but it's based on what the Bible has already said. Okay, so uh, hopefully I've driven that point home. Okay, so then the contrast to that is what we began by discussing, which is this idea that we can fit evolution and uh, and millions of years of time somewhere into Genesis 1 through 11. Now, the problem is that I see no consistent way of doing that. So, let me give you an example. If we're understanding the Bible um, naturally, in other words, the words just simply mean what they say, and they uh, are clearly being used to communicate the author's intent, then we have dates given to us throughout those first chapters of Genesis that help us get to around 2,000 years of time between the creation of the world and Noah's flood. Now, what this involves is um, ages for, you know, what's often called the great patriarchs, such as Adam, such as Noah, Methuselah is one that often comes up there. These guys lived, according to the Bible, for an incredibly long amount of time. Uh, Methuselah and Adam, uh, to use those two examples, they both lived over 900 years. Now, that's a long time. If we understand the Bible to be recording history as naturally as possible, we're forced to admit that they lived for that period of time, for 900 years. Now, how would modern science be dictating our understanding of the Bible? Um, well, I, I think in at least two ways in regards to this particular discussion. Just dealing with the age of the patriarchs, there's two different things going on there. The first thing is that there is no history in in the in the in the secular understanding of earth history uh, there is no such thing as a person having ever lived for 900 years it's 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 just not there so the person who wants to um say that maybe there are maybe there's room for millions of years of time in those first few chapters and maybe Adam is somewhere between you know I can never keep up with the ranges but probably the leading um, you know 
old age creationist organization would probably be Hugh Ross's reasons to believe. And I think they're somewhere in the 20 to 120,000 range uh, year range for Adam any of the Garden of Eden. They're putting them somewhere in the, you know, 20 to 120,000 years, or maybe it's 30 uh, to 120,000 years. I'm not exactly sure, uh, but I'm pretty sure that is the last range that I remember reading. So, in that understanding of Earth history, even with Adam and Eve being placed where they were, and of course, we've talked about Neanderthals before, and you kind of have to do some reinterpretation of Neanderthals in order to make that work as well. Um, there is no room for a person, for a human individual, to be 900 years. We, we, we just, 900 years old, we just have no evidence of that. Um, as a matter of fact, the further back we go in the fossil record, uh, we find that the opposite is true. We find that folks who are 70 uh, or above are extremely hard to find. Most people are around 30-something years of age. When we go back into the history of life, looking at it from a conventional dating paradigm, uh, we're somewhere, you know, the average life expectancy is somewhere 30 to 40-something years. The older person is quite rare to find. So... When we look to the Bible then, and we see these old ages, and this is just, this isn't even talking about evolutionary um, creationism here. We're just talking about old age creationism. On this view, the, the you know, 900 years, I mean, the, the Bible says that, um, if I'm remembering this correctly, that the flood started in the 600th year of Noah's life. It, it, that's what it says. In the, it, that just this is just what it says in the six hundredth year of Noah's life. That's when the, the the flood started. How else are you going to interpret that? That's just what the text says. Okay. So if modern science is dictating our understanding of the Bible, which is not how hermeneutics works, that that's not how you you don't understand a text, an ancient text based on modern science. You, you can't do that. But. If one were to do that, they would have to reinterpret what plainly says the 600th year of Noah's life. That has to be something else. That has to be something else. So there is an example of dictating, uh, of modern science dictating one's understanding of the Bible. Now the question is, is that is that correct? Well, I don't think it is, but let's table that part of the discussion. Let's just look at it for what it is. Is is doing that the same thing as when a young age creationist says, oh geez, it really looks like this passage is talking about a dinosaur. Notice the difference. Nobody has to reinterpret the words in the Job 40 chapter on dinosaurs, but you do have to reinterpret the words and the numbers, etc. in this example on, on conventional dating. All right. If we're gonna if we're gonna consistently apply modern science to the Bible, okay. Now let's look at the other part of that. There's another part of that with the numbers. I think this is just probably the the the, um, the easiest example. There are others that we could maybe give, but the numbers really makes it clear. Okay. So on the kind of a and e mythical allegorical uh, for, for for those guys when they approach the text, 
they say, well, okay, in these ancient Near Eastern documents, um, the neighbors of the Israelites, supposedly there are um, these numerology was important, and there are these numbers that are used, and they are uh, multiples of seven, and they have specific uh, meanings that would have meant something to the ancient audience that is meaningful to us today. Okay, well, is that correct? Well, again, I don't think that understanding of the Bible is correct um, for many, many reasons, but, but, but that's just a different discussion altogether. We just don't have time to go into that today. Um, so I'm going to try to keep it on track here. But is that understanding correct? Well, I mean, certainly I think that we could look at that. And there, you know, there might be multiples of seven, et cetera. You know, um, I, that might be something that is mirrored somewhat in A&E cosmologies. But what are we going to do with when it says that the flood started in the 600th year of Noah's life? To me, that is such a plain statement that if we're going to... Um, find some kind of any mythical meaning behind it we still have to reinterpret the the words the plain words it obviously means something other than the 600th year of noah's life even though that's what it says does that make sense does that understand now you might look at me and you might say, boy, this guy's a real simpleton. He just takes words for what they mean. Well, let me ask you something. Every word that I've spoken to you, have you taken it the way that I've meant it? Have you been reinterpreting my words? I hope you haven't done that to me, and I'm not going to do it to you either. So I don't mean to get hostile here, but this is what I'm trying to say. At what point would I allow modern science to dictate my understanding of the Bible? I would not allow that at any point because that's not how you understand texts. That's not how documents are understood. You don't understand documents um, by reinterpreting them, reinterpreting them, excuse me, based on new information. You use new information to bolster understanding of what the words have already said. So hopefully you can see the difference there. I think there is a massive difference. Now, this, again, and this is brought up all the time, so you can use this. I mean, you can use this in your conversations. You might come up with a more pithy way of discussing it uh, rather than, uh, you know, sending them to my 45-minute podcast episode. Um, but you're welcome to do that if you want to. Um, but, but surely any reasonable person would have to see the difference there in what is going on. In one case, you have to completely reinterpret the words. You have to actually think that the words mean something other than they say. But in the other case, you can let the words mean what they say. It's just that you have a, a, a natural referent um, that makes more uh, sense. Now, one could argue that the commentators over the years who interpreted this to mean some sort of a hippo or something like that in the case of Job 40 were simply mistaken. Um, mistaken in making the assessment. And I would, I never thought about it like that before, but I think I would have to take that view. I think I would have to say that the, th th those people, those commentators, looked at uh, the biblical information. They 
used what information about the natural world that they had, and they came up with an interpretation that was not fair to the text because it didn't match what the words said. But they weren't aware that anything like that existed. So, um, I could think of another example, and we're going to go over a little bit here, uh, over four to five minutes anyway, but I could think of another example from archaeology where this has happened. Uh, the Bible talks about a group of people called the Hittites. As a matter of fact, the Bible spends a lot of time dealing with this group of people called the Hittites. Uh, but it wasn't until, I believe, the, the turn of the century, uh, the, the 1900s actually, the turn of the 20th century, that any remnant of the Hittite civilization began to be discovered. For all of that time, the only place it was known was the Bible. For all intents and purposes, those things just didn't exist. The Hittite civilization just never existed. It was just a fairy tale. And yet, we now have confirmation of it. So this sort of thing happens all the time. Where we have things that's maybe like, oh, this is a little hard to believe. And then, later on, we find it. It might have been hard to believe that there were springs in the sea. But we found them. It might have been hard to believe that there was a creature with a tail like a cedar. But we found them. It might have been hard to believe that there was a Hittite civilization. But we found them. And when we found them, we didn't have to change the meaning of the words. We simply had better information about the natural world that now matches what we have read all along. And that is how science relates to the Bible. Now, let me put that in some lingo that might help you to make this uh, a feature of your discussions. The example of what the young age creationist attempts to do, I would argue, would be holding the Bible and science in a ministerial relationship. In other words, modern science is allowed to minister to the meaning of the Bible. It is allowed to complement it. It is allowed to um, help us to understand what the Bible is trying to communicate. That is a ministerial relationship. In contrast, when we looked at the issue of the um, of of uh, trying to um, make room for uh, more time in the first chapters of Genesis, what the person must do is take plain words that are in there uh, about uh, chronology, etc., and change the meaning of those words. When a person does that, they are using what we would call a, a magisterial relationship between modern science and the Bible. In other words, the Modern science is allowed to magistrate or to uh, to lord over our understanding of the Bible. It is allowed to change it. It is allowed to dictate, precisely as the question is worded, it is allowed to dictate our understanding of an ancient text, even though that is not how um, understanding an ancient text works. 
So hopefully that helps you uh, in your conversations. You can use that. You can um, work with others. You can help them to understand that we don't allow modern science to dictate our understanding of the Bible. And this is why. It's because that we don't allow modern science to magistrate over the Bible, but it can minister to the Bible and bolster and enhance our understanding. Hey, let's say a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for allowing us to study your word and to study your world. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives and in our ministry. I pray now that you would give us confidence as Christians to share your message with anyone and everyone who will listen. I pray, Father, that you would give us opportunity after opportunity in the coming week to share your gospel with the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you again so much for joining us this week on the Steve Schramm Show. It has uh, been an absolute pleasure to be with you and uh, you, you to allow me to speak into your life. I uh, I don't regret that, and I'm excited for the future. Hey, listen, if you haven't done it yet, maybe you're a, a, a new listener or... Um, you know, you just, uh, you, you've listened to the podcast for some time, but haven't engaged with anything else in our ministry. Um, I want to send you something. I, I'd like for you to go to steveshram.com slash defend. steveshram.com slash defend. I'll put a link in the show notes. You can go there and receive a free four lesson email course completely on us. Uh, and uh, that will we'll also send you a follow up email after that to where you can learn a little bit more about our ministry and the kinds of things we have going on. But that's a free four-lesson course on how to defend your faith with confidence. So I pray you'll go there, sign up for that, and take that. Hey, thanks again for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next week. Uh, Bye-bye.